Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Elizabeth Strelacci took oxycodone for about a year for back pain that was getting progressively worse over the decades she suffered from it. The drug was given to her by her doctor, legally prescribed and believed to be the best option to relieve her pain. The drug helped, but when she tried to stop, she suffered severe symptoms of withdrawal she never expected to experience. The National Institutes of Health says one in three people like Elizabeth suffer from chronic pain in America, and doctors are turning increasingly to opioids to treat it. Doctors wrote 259 million prescriptions in 2012. As the NIH report put it recently, that's the equivalent of one bottle of pills for every adult in America, leading to greater tolerance, withdrawal, in some cases, overdose. It's also seen as a major cause for the spike in heroin use in America, with many of those addicted to their prescriptions turning to cheaper, even deadlier heroin. So is it time to look at the way we treat pain in America? Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Do you suffer from chronic pain yourself? How do you relieve it? And how have opioids affected you? Coming up later, we'll look at a tool that's become increasingly available to save the lives of those who overdose. Narcan can help reverse the symptoms of overdose if caught in time. Joining us from a studio at WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina, is Elizabeth Strelacci. She's a journalist, former resident of Connecticut, who, as we said, became addicted to opioids while taking them for back pain. Uh, We started this conversation in part because of a conversation that we had online, Elizabeth, and I'm so glad you can join us today. Thank you so much for being here on Where We Live. It's my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. I also want to welcome into the program Dr. Daniel Tobin, who's Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine and Medical Director for the Adult Primary Care Center at uh, St. Raphael's campus of Yale New Haven. Uh, Dr. Tobin, welcome to where we live. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. And uh, Sean Lang is here. She's Director of Public Policy with AIDS Connecticut. She's joined us to talk about these issues in the program before. Sean, good to see you. Great to see you, John. Thanks. Before we turn to Elizabeth for her story, I- I'd like to turn to you, Doctor, and put a little bit uh, finer point on how prevalent opioid use is here in the country. We hear the reports coming from the CDC or from the NIH. It seems like it's a problem. How big is the problem? The problem is huge. Um, But, you know, you have to put it in the context of the problem of chronic pain. And I think your introduction was right on target. A hundred million Americans suffer from chronic pain um, at a cost of $635 billion a year in lost wages and productivity, time away from work, you know, doctor's bills. So patients are suffering. And I think they turn to their doctors to look for help. And uh, oftentimes it might seem like a simple solution is not. Uh, and opioids tend to be overused and then sometimes unfortunately misused and abused. Um, so it's a, it's a major problem. Um, the, uh, the rate of accidental overdose death has been rapidly increasing. And it's time for us to open our eyes and do something about it. Lay people might want to look for a quick fix or a quick solution. A lot of times we rely on our doctors to prescribe something to us that is going to be good for us short and long term. Do you think that there's a message that doctors aren't getting? So, you know, if you look at the literature, um, unfortunately, there's been very few studies looking at the efficacy of medicines like opioids beyond six weeks. So we don't know if this is a really effective long-term solution. And so the message is this is a nuanced and complicated issue, and it takes time. 
And if you're a primary care doctor who's got 15 to 20 minutes to see a patient, you might not be able to do justice to the issue. So the message that we need to get is we need to spend more time learning about this. We need to take some more time actually talking to our patients and personalizing the care to be the best fit for them. Sean, you've been taking a, a look at a lot of these statistics. I mean, who, who exactly is using these drugs overwhelmingly in America? So we've looked at with um, some of our friends who are researchers at Yale as the opiate overdose death data, both accidental and undetermined, over the past six years. And so there have been about 2,000 um, opiate overdose deaths in that time period affecting all but 17 of our 169 towns and cities. And it's 70% male, 85% white, with a mean age of 40, and most of those overdoses occurred in a residence. So it's not some old guy in a back alley overdosing. It's people overdosing in their own homes with a variety of drugs, everything from heroin to prescription opiates to benzos. Um, Very often people have mixed drugs, and unknowingly um, that increases their chances of overdose. Hello, Laura. Go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I am the mother of a now 20-year-old daughter who, unfortunately, at the age of eight, suffered a um, small, mild sprain to her right wrist, which then um, turned into a a, a rare uh, chronic pain disorder, uh, neuropathy called reflex sympathetic dystrophy syndrome, or CRPS. We were lucky enough to be in the Northeast, and we were able to get incredibly wonderful comprehensive and multidisciplinary um, uh, treatment, both at Connecticut Children's and at Boston Children's. And many years ago, there was a a topic of taking uh, pain management out of Medicaid, and we were able to testify in front of uh, the Connecticut uh, Senate to not do that. But I think the the issue of chronic pain, and chronic pain in children in particular, is a a whole other topic that wreaks havoc as, as the young little kids grow up living with chronic pain and then um, developing additional symptoms later. Unfortunately, our daughter was recently hospitalized as an adult, and she was, there were many times she was being taken care of with with IV pain medication management um, because her central nervous system is now completely different than those of normal young adults. Mm. And on numerous occasions, unfortunately, in the ER, she didn't notice, but I noticed the, the docs looking at her just a little bit, and some of the residents in particular looking at her just a little bit like maybe she was a drug Well, And that changed hmm. the way I think that she feels about herself and also the medical system. Laura, thank you very much for that story. And boy, there's a lot in there, including uh, opioids in children. Maybe you can address that first, Doctor, because I want to get to some of what Laura had to say. Yeah, sure. I mean, before we talk about opioids specifically, one thing that the caller brings up, which is so important, is that there are different types of pain. Um, And it's not vanilla, always treated with vanilla. So uh, in the case of complex regional pain syndrome or reflex sympathetic dystrophy, we're talking about a problem with the nervous system and neuropathic pain um, should be approached differently than pain from, for example, a, a broken hip. Um, so opioids may be part of the solution, but really it's only when used in combination with other therapies um, that have not really achieved functional goals. You know, it's not getting rid of the pain. It's getting the person back to functioning meaningfully. And the combination of those things in what we'd call a multimodal approach um, would be the right way to use opioids. If, if the non-opioid treatments are not working, then at that point, adding the opioids to those things may make some sense. In terms of opioids in children, um, you know, unfortunately, we know that um, a large number of uh, children under the age of 18, including under the age of 12, 
um, are, are using prescription opioids uh, inappropriately, illicitly. You know, there, there's this um, sense that because it's a prescription drug, it's safer. Um, and, of course, that's not true. Uh, but, you know, as, to go back to the point of the medicine cabinet, yeah. that's where they're getting it. But, but what are the rules for doctors about prescribing a 12-year-old oxycodone? The studies haven't included children to know whether these medications are going to be safe or effective in that age group. So to some degree, there's a little bit of faith involved here and hope that the parents are going to partner with their kids to manage these medicines safely. I, I just want to ask you quickly, Sean, the flip side of this, of course, is we're talking about opioid overprescription and overuse. But then Laura also tells the story that I'm sure quite a few people have, which is their young daughter then looked at as perhaps a little bit of a drug seeker in the hospital. You come in and you're young and people think you're just there to get the drugs. And that can actually be a barrier for an awful lot of people who are legitimately looking for pain relief. That's where I think, and, and Dr. Tobin talked about this a little bit, in terms of being able to spend time with your patients to get a full history, find out if there's any history of substance use or addiction, even within the family, because nobody knows how their own bodies and metabolism is going to respond to any medication, but in particular, something like an opiate, which can be very dangerous. Um, but taking that time to figure out exactly what's going on and prescribe appropriately, there's um, a move in the state, too, to better use the state's prescription drug monitoring program um, so that we can track and know what people have already been prescribed. Um, so that'll be another way to sort of look at is somebody drug seeking or somebody legitimately looking for pain relief. We're going to be talking a little bit more about some state legislation that's been passed this year on the program. I want to turn, though, to Elizabeth Strelacci. Uh She, again, was taking oxycodone for chronic back pain. Elizabeth, maybe you can just tell us your story and how you began to to use this drug in the first place. Well, I um, I've had back pain for as long as I can remember. Um, and when Jim and I moved down to Myrtle Beach, um, I talked with my regular GP about the back pain, and he sent me to a specialist. This was not my uh, regular doctor that prescribed this. And um, I want to be very careful here because the doctor that I see is phenomenal. Um, he has worked, he has a broken back himself. So he's very familiar with this kind of pain. And I, I don't think for one minute that he was over-prescribing me. I think the problem is he only has so many tools in the toolkit. We had tried a couple of other things. We'd tried some, uh, a procedure where they go in with a needle and they basically deaden the nerve endings to see um, if that gives you relief. It can give you relief anywhere from six months to two years. We tried some non-narcotic medications, but um, my back pain was just bleeding through all of it. And so um, he tried me on a very low dose of oxycodone, and it was effective. It gave me the relief that I needed so that I could go um, to work, to take care of my grandson, to play with the dogs, to go for walks with Jim, um, but it, one of the things that he told me was if there's a day when you're not in a lot of pain, don't take it. And that's when I hit this wall. Uh, there was a day when I felt really great when I woke up and I didn't take a pill. And as the day wore on, I started to feel like I was coming down with the flu, that sort of thing. And, um, the next day came and I got hit full in the face with an extremely, I mean, I can't tell you how heavy this depression was. You have to bear in mind, I, um, as you and I talked about, John, I have bipolar. 
and this is not something a lot of people talk about, and I know I'm taking a risk. I'm going out on a limb here, but um, I take medication for it every day. I've been taking medication every day for probably 15 years, and it's been very effective. And all of a sudden, I found myself in this well of depression like nothing I have ever experienced. In fact, for the first few days, I was suicidal, and I have never been suicidal in my life. Um, Thank the good Lord I had a wonderful husband standing by my side who didn't leave me alone for a minute. Um, And my doctor said, okay, let's wean you off of it. Go back and take another one, and um, we'll back you off. And I said, you know what? Doc, I'm two days into it. I'm going to see this through. I just want to get off of this. I don't want to take this anymore. Clearly, my body is in going through withdrawal, and, and I don't ever want to do this again. So I saw it through, but it was two weeks of um, misery. I mean, I can take the flu-like symptoms, which my doctor said would probably go for seven to ten days. I can handle that. It was this debilitating depression that just caught me completely off guard and, and swept my feet out from under me. So um, we're at the point now where we're going to explore some other options and see if there's something that is not narcotic um, that might help reduce my pain. But frankly, I'm at the point where if I have to be in pain, I'll take that over going through anything like this again. I'd rather hurt. Well, and and I want to put some of this to the doctor, but I guess the first question I have for you is, did you and your doctor know right away what was happening, that essentially you were going through withdrawal? He did. I didn't know right away. Um, I called the office and and talked, um, left a message, and he called me back to see, you know, am I getting sick or is um, is my medication for the bipolar suddenly not working or what's happening? And and he immediately knew what was what was going on. And you know, I I guess there are some doctors out there who can over prescribe this um, or who who may give a prescription at the drop of the hat. My doctor's not like that. He's incredibly responsible and responsive. My anger right now is at the pharmaceutical companies. It's interesting that Sean said and the doctor has said that there's not a lot of research. I think it was Dr. Tobin that said there's not a lot of research beyond six weeks. Well, if you're a pharmaceutical company and you have this wonderful cash cow, people get addicted and they're going to have to keep buying it, what would you do? Well, and so, doctor, there's a a lot in this story that I want to ask you about. If you have someone who's in chronic pain, chronic means it's sometimes a lifetime of pain. If they're prescribed a narcotic like oxycodone, is it meant to be taken at a maintenance level for the rest of their lives? It, it doesn't seem as though it's been tested for that. What do we know about the long-term effects if someone like Elizabeth has long-term back pain, the oxycodone works? Well, just stay on it for a year, two years, five there, years. There's so much here to talk about. I want to preface it all by saying that there was this interesting study um, in 2011 that looked to see where in medical school or in residency training are we learning how to manage pain. And at least at that time, there were only five medical schools out of the 133 um, at that, that year that had a mandatory course on pain management. So it's very, very likely that uh, your, your doctor uh, or, or most doctors have graduated, have an MD degree, and have never been taught how to manage chronic pain. Isn't pain like one of the most important things that we might come to a doctor with? Well, yeah, I, I, that's right. And so, you know, it makes sense to you. It makes sense to me. Um, but it hasn't traditionally been part of medical education. And so, you know, really well-meaning people may just not know how to do this effectively and safely. Um, you know, a couple of things that we really should sort of be clear about before uh, we delve too much into this 
you know, the story is not one of addiction that I heard here. It's one of physical dependence. You know, um, addiction is really the overuse, misuse, and sort of cravings for, for medications, even in the presence of negative consequences. Physical dependence is your body's adaptation to chronic exposure to the medication. And it happens to everybody who takes these medicines over time. It's just part of the property of using it. And after um, uh, some time of using chronic opioid therapy, if you suddenly stop, um, you're going to get sick. That's withdrawal. And so, you know, part of part of starting opioid therapy is having an exit plan um, and ec- recognizing that it's not going to necessarily be lifelong. The data doesn't support the use lifelong. We need to have sort of functional objectives. Are they being met? Are they not being met? And at some point when the risks outweigh the benefits, it's time to come off, but come off deliberately and slowly, usually by a 10% reduction per week. So to cold turkey stop, especially long-term high-dose use, is, is going to make you ill. We're talking today about opioids and their addictive qualities. We're talking with Elizabeth Strelacci. She was a journalist. She's a former resident of Connecticut who became addicted to opioids while taking them for back pain. She's been telling us her story. Dr. Daniel Tobin from Yale University School of Medicine is here, as well as Sean Lang, Director of Public Policy with AIDS Connecticut. You can join this conversation on our website. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live or on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. The National Institutes of Health says that 100 million people suffer from chronic pain in America, yet the source and intensity of that pain is different for everyone. So why are we treating almost everyone with the same one-size-fits-all solution of opioids? Are there some other ways to treat pain? We're talking about some of the problems that opioids cause in America with Elizabeth Strelacci, a journalist who's telling her story of chronic back pain, uh, Dr. Daniel Tobin from Yale University School of Medicine, and Sean Lang, who's Director of Public Policy with AIDS Connecticut, who's been working on issues surrounding opioid overuse. I just want to get back to something you said earlier and make sure people understand something, a difference in your mind between addiction and physical dependence. In some ways, that, that craving that we think of with, say, a heroin user, someone who, who is seeking this fix, the problem is there's also a physical uh, dependence that goes along with it as well. And I guess I just want to make sure I understand completely the differentiation you make between addiction to a substance and physical dependence on a substance. Right. So somebody who um, has a problem with a substance use disorder, abuse and, and dependence and addiction, um, often what they're doing is using more and more of the substance um, and losing control over their use in an effort to feel high from it, um, e- even though it may be causing negative consequences in their life. Um, and it, often a lot of time, a lot of money, uh, and a lot of energy is devoted to this so that other things suffer, like relationships with people, your, your ability to function independently in society, pay your bills. You know, People become homeless and lose their, their marriages. This is awful. Um, physical dependence is is different. This is not a loss of control and cravings for more and more medications. This is something that just is your body's normal um, ability to adapt to chronically flooding your receptors um, with this medication. It, it changes the way your brain works. It changes the way your nervous system works. And it takes time to adapt off of it as well. Um, it has nothing to do with cravings. Um, it, it has nothing to do with misuse. Elizabeth, do you see this this distinction? Do you feel that what you've had is a physical dependence on this product as opposed to an addiction that we might term differently? Well, I think, yes, I see the distinction. And um, to a point, I would agree. 
with Dr. Tobin. I think that the one thing that he's missing is when you have a physical dependence on something like an opioid, um, I wouldn't say that you necessarily have cravings, but because your body has become adapted to it and because the withdrawal from it is, um, if you do what I did and just stop, um, it's so bad that at least psychologically the easy way out is to go back to taking it. Um, I guess maybe that's not a craving as much as a, a physical need. You know, you want to satisfy your body's desire to feel better. I mean, that's why we started taking pain meds in the first place. So you're facing a choice. You can either go back to taking it or you can grit your teeth and get through it. But your body, um, when you're in the middle of that, is screaming, make me feel better. Um, I I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. Make it stop. And so, um, you know, it takes some some resilience to say, no, I'm I'm not going to give in. I'm um, partway through this, I'm just going to go on. And, and I agree with Dr. Tobin that to have an exit strategy or to wean off of it is the ideal solution. The reason that I just stuck it out is because I was uh, already two full days into it, and I didn't want to go backwards. I didn't want to go back to taking, you know, I was prescribed four a day, and I didn't want to go back to taking three a day and then two a day. And, you know, I, given my... Um, the bipolar syndrome, I didn't know how effective weeding off of it was going to be, how long it would take me. And I just, I can be pretty stubborn. And I just decided the heck with it. I'm just going to see it through. Um, Not the easiest way to do it. I concede that point. But I really do think that, that there is a very fine line of distinction between physical dependence and addiction. And addiction is a scary word that nobody wants to use. Nobody wants to acknowledge or admit I'm addicted to pain meds um, because it it has that negative connotation. Um, but but I think we're almost splitting hairs here in at least part of the definition because but, yeah. In in part, Sean, it's it's why though I wanted to put a finer point on this because addiction is a scary word. Sometimes using the scary word is inappropriate, and sometimes using the scary word is exactly what we need to do in order to get people to pay more attention to something. Yeah, and I think Dr. Tobin has really sort of laid out kind of the difference between dependence and addiction. Um, and there is a fine line when you cross that bridge. And once you've crossed that line, that term addiction carries a tremendous amount of stigma with it that really prevents individuals and families from seeking help. Um, and people, there was a great commercial probably back in the 60s or 70s, for those of us who are old enough to remember, that says nobody wants to grow up to be a junkie. And that's true. Nobody chooses to become an addict. And when I read the comment sections um, on, from articles on about addiction, particularly around heroin addiction, um, people keep talking about it as a choice. You chose this. You chose this. And it's not a choice. Maybe the choice to try something first is a choice. But again, none of us know how our bodies and our metabolism is going to react to any substance we introduce to it. Um, so we really need to take that off the table um, that it's a choice, and we also need to take off the table that relapse is a sign of failure. It's mm. just part of the process. Sarah is calling from New New Canaan. Hi, Sarah. Go ahead. Yes, hi. I'm a hospice volunteer, and uh, countless times I've seen uh, families of terminally ill patients uh, telling the uh, physician overseeing the case that they hate their loved one to be on so many pain meds because it renders them 
you know, they're, they're not the same. Uh, they feel they can't communicate with them. They're afraid they're going to get addicted. And I have seen physicians saying, well, okay, that's fine. Since the patient can't advocate for themselves, uh, selves because they're uh, in their terminal illness, I've seen people suffer at the end of their life because the family's so afraid of pain medication. Mm. Yet, you have physicians, as you said, that claim they only have 15 minutes to sit with a patient who is coming in as generally healthy, right, but has a chronic, a, a chronic pain condition. The way around that would be have the PA or have the patient sign into the portal. They have medical portals now. You can get all background information. How long has the pain been? Is anyone in your family addicted to opioids? Have you ever had an addiction issue? How much alcohol do you drink? Um, you know, things like that. So physicians can spend 15 quality minutes with the patient, and it takes just as long to write a prescription for acupuncture, acupressure, reflexology. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously a lot of these can be for orthopedic issues because that's what I'm the most familiar with, that those alternative care methods work. And Sarah, thank you very much for that. Jim actually tweets something along the same line, slightly different point. Uh, the problem often is the lack of insurance reimbursement for interdisciplinary care for chronic pain. Essentially picking up on something Sarah said, it's not just about the 15 minutes, doctor, that someone may or may not have. It's about, you know, what gets covered. You can get those uh, prescriptions covered very, very quickly. Some of these other things, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. You know, I think there's a couple of issues here, but most importantly is the philosophy that opioids are inherently good or bad. And, and I'd like to just address that. You know, what I try to teach is that they're not inherently evil. They're not inherently good. They're dangerous but potentially useful. And so they're just one tool and a whole toolbox of options. And what we really need is to address this um, based on the job. You know, if the job requires a hammer, you don't use a screwdriver. So doctors need to know when to use this tool, how to use it safely. Um, the time element becomes less of an issue the more familiar you are with it. But just judging by the numbers, it seems as though people are like, hammer, hammer, hammer. Yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. we see. I mean, that's what the numbers will bear this out. Well, uh, uh, yes. However, I'll just say that one of the uh, clinics at UConn um, refuses completely to prescribe opioids in any circumstance because the fear and stigma, they're just so worried about it, they don't want to deal with it. So you have both ends of the spectrum, overuse but also underuse. I, I want to get to another phone call here. Uh, Representative Sean Scanlon is calling in. Uh, he he actually was a co-sponsor of some legislation having to do with prescription drug abuse. Uh, and, Representative, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. No problem, John. Good morning. I know that you think that this is a very important issue in the state. What's in the bill that you that you proposed and that you got through uh, the House and Senate this uh, past session? Well, you know, the credit really belongs uh, to a few people, namely the governor, who has been very committed to this, as Dr. Tobin and Sean are aware, uh, for several years. And this year, uh, myself and Representative Teresa Conroy from Seymour both wrote sort of bills that were very similar to his. We combined them all together, and the bill basically does three things. It makes sure that doctors, when they renew their license, get continuing medical education when it comes to pain management. Number two, uh, as the doctor and Sean have suggested, um, we want to get better about the prescription drug management system here. And so this law basically says that whenever a prescriber is going to prescribe a more than 72-hour supply of an opioid, uh, they have to use this database to make sure that the patient sitting in front of them is not doctor shopping and going from doctor to doctor. And the last thing it does is it makes Narcan and other uh, antagonists that are used to stem the tide of an overdose 
more widely available so that somebody can walk into their local pharmacy and the pharmacist, after being properly trained, can give that anti-overdose uh, drug back to somebody to potentially save their life. Hmm. Sean, could you follow up on some of this? Because I know that you've been working for years to get some of this uh, through uh, the Connecticut State Legislature. Do you see some hope in some of what uh, the representative is talking about here? Tremendous amount of hope. I think one of the biggest things for me on a sort of a um, client or act advocate side is that families will be able to access naloxone or Narcan through the pharmacy once the pharmacists are trained. This is going to remove a huge barrier. Up till now, people need a prescription to get naloxone, and many people are incredibly reluctant to go to their general practitioner, their primary care provider, admit that there's an opiate addiction within their family, and get a prescription for naloxone. I've personally had families call me, sometimes randomly, to find out how they can access naloxone, and because our organization has a program through the Department of Public Health to be able to distribute naloxone, I've been able to work with those families, have them come to my office, train them, and give them the naloxone kits, the overdose prevention kits, for their basically for their adult children. And they're incredibly relieved to have access to that. And I think it's really important in the context of, of everything that we're talking about here, as I was speaking with producer uh, Betsy Kaplan about before the program, an awful lot of the conversation around naloxone has been around uh, heroin overdose. And it's a, a, a stigma issue, certainly. There is a huge problem of IV drug use in Connecticut and across the Northeast and across America. And almost everything that you see in the news about something like Narcan is about how to help people who are using heroin. But you're talking about over overdose of any of the prescription drugs that we're talking about here as well. If I rule the world... Um, when a doctor would write a prescription... Which you might someday, Sean, I might someday. Please. You never know. Um, God help us. But, um, you know, doctors, when they do an assessment with their clients, their patients about prescribing an opiate, they would also look at a history of potential substance use, talk about the addictive qualities of opiates, and co-write a prescription for naloxone. Because a lot of these overdoses are accidental. I hear stories from families all the time, people who are on legitimate pain management, and the family member is afraid that the person might overdose because you can take an Oxy or take your Vicodin and take a nap and wake up and not remember if you took the pill or not. So you might be overdosing yourself unintentionally. Mm. And, 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 doctor, any, any thoughts on this? Because it seems as though that is probably something that just goes hand in glove, right? If you're going to take this very dangerous, as you said, but potentially very, very useful drug, it makes sense, I think, to probably take the thing that might help you if you indeed overdose for whatever reason. I agree completely. And I'm very, very supportive of the work that Representative Scanlon and the governor have done. Um, I, I do agree that Narcan naloxone should be a standard part of what we do. There is so much misinformation about that drug. Um, many of the trainees that I work with think that they need special certification to even prescribe it. They don't realize that, you know, they can just write a prescription. So removing barriers to its use and educating both the public and uh, prescribers is, is really critical. Uh, when we come back from our break, we're going to hear more of your stories as we talk about opioid overprescription, overuse, addiction, dependence. We're hearing your stories as well, the story of Elizabeth Stralacci. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, a study out of Arizona State University looks at how tasers impact the way we think. We'll talk to one of the researchers and ask, should police officers be more careful in how quickly they question an individual following taser deployment? There's a lot of questions about tasers, and we'll raise them tomorrow coming up on Where We Live. I hope you can join us. 
Today on the program, we're talking about opioid overprescription and overuse in America. It's seen as an epidemic, and we're talking with people who have direct, uh, well, not only... uh, in some cases, very direct stories about their overuse. Uh, Elizabeth Strelacci, a journalist, former resident of Connecticut, who became addicted to opioids while taking them for back pain. Also, uh, Dr. Daniel Tobin is here from Yale University School of Medicine. Sean Lang from AIDS, Connecticut. And uh, I'm going to get to a few more phone calls here quickly. Tyler is calling from Southington. Hello, Tyler. Hello. Hi, what's on your mind? I'm a little frustrated by the discussion. Certainly. You know, as a chronic pain patient myself with degenerative discs in my low back and neck, um, I'm a young man, less than 50, and live in day-to-day pain. As I stand here talking to you, my hip is aching so much I'm limping. And these medicines help. And I feel as though the patients and medicines are being demonized uh, in a large regard by this discussion. I see a chronic pain management specialist that has done injections into my back. I've seen more chiropractors than I have fingers to count with. I've been for acupuncture. To hear reflexology thrown out there, these acupuncture and reflexology don't even have science to stand behind them. These are, I agree with alternative medicine therapies. I'm a licensed massage therapist myself. They help to a degree. But these medicines are some of the most powerful tools in the toolbox, and to demonize patients and and the medicines themselves is frustrating, especially given the idea of how much Americans work. We work more than anyone, any nation in the first world. We're not addressing that, and it's not really a surprise that we have this much pain that we have to face. Well, I, I don't want to, yeah. you know. No, no. It's Tyler, hard. I'd like it to ask you a question. To live yeah. in pain and yeah. have a family and not be able to play with your kids and to look at them playing ball and say, geez, I would love to play, but I know that if I play in 10 minutes, I'm going to be miserable. Yeah. Or to do the, you know, to sacrifice and say, yes, I'll go and, and ride, do the hike with you. I'll ride the bike with you and pay later. So, well, well, so I, I just yeah. felt that someone needed to speak up and say, you know what, we're, we're afraid of introducing or researching or uh, exploring options like THC that has so much potential. Well, and I just want to ask you, Tyler, first of all, I really appreciate you raising it because I think it's an important perspective for us. And I really, truly think and and, and hope here we're not demonizing in any way the patients. I think the call that maybe I'm making by wanting to do a program like this or the other advocates are gets a little bit to the person from the pharmaceutical company who called earlier that if indeed we could come up with a therapy that would help you and others that would not have addictive qualities, that if indeed we could... Um, muster our resources and spend the money, the great millions and billions of dollars that we spend on pharmaceuticals or healthcare in America toward getting something that will help you and others that does not have the addictive qualities and causes so many other problems, wouldn't that be a good place to, to go, right? I, I was very excited to hear that call and it is, would like to uh, go back and look up the name of this company and follow that to get into some clinical trials for mm. them. Hey, Tyler, thank you again very much for your phone call. And, and uh, Elizabeth Strelacci, I just want to ask you to follow up on that quickly because that's another thing that, we're, that we haven't really talked a whole lot about. I think Tyler puts into very stark relief. For those who don't live with chronic pain, there's no way to know. There's a lot of stigma about all the stuff that we're talking about. But at the end of the day, dealing with the type of pain that you have or that Tyler has is something that many of us cannot comprehend. Well, and and I'm glad you asked me to address it because as Tyler was talking, I was sitting here squirming in my chair saying, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, Tyler, I get it totally. Um, there is a part of me that, that 
want so badly to be rid of this pain to um, I do limp when I walk. It's hard for me to we live in a third floor walk up and going up and down those stairs multiple times a day kills me. Um, There are times when it's really all I can do not to just get down on my hands and knees and crawl because going up the stairs hurts so much. Um, And I don't fault or blame or demonize anybody who takes pain meds because of chronic pain. I mean, we all want to live normal lives and be able to play with our kids, our grandkids, the dogs, go for walks, sit in our job and not feel like, you know, we're ready to scream any minute. Um, but like Tyler, I'm I'm 51 years old. And um, as much as that seemed very, very old when I was 17, <laughs> it doesn't seem very old now. And I'm, I'm quite hopeful that I will have another 40 years. And the idea of taking ever-increasing doses for the next 40 years. Um, I just wasn't ready to do that. Um, Sarah, I think, is the the woman who called in who deals with hospice patients. And I, if someone is at the end of their life and in pain, for God's sakes, give them relief. I think that we um, we tend to have these knee-jerk reactions sometimes to you know, when something like this comes up and it hasn't a stigma attached to it, like Yukon, we are very quick to say, fine, let's just don't use it at all. And that's not the answer either. People who are in pain deserve to be treated. They deserve to um, have pharmaceutical companies and doctors trying to find ways to relieve their pain. We don't need to jump from one extreme to the other. There needs to be a middle ground, and um, I would never, ever blame or criticize someone who takes pain medication on an ongoing basis to deal um, with extreme discomfort. There's nothing wrong with that and nothing wrong with you for wanting to be free of the pain. I am a little bit um, in, in a little bit of a different situation because I do have other issues that play into how the medication affects me, and that's a whole other stigma. Uh, mental illness, which is a whole different show. But I think that it's very easy for someone who doesn't have chronic pain, who doesn't need to take a medication to deal with it, to look at those who do and make a judgment, Mm. Uh, you know, say, well, you're weak. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, you take the pain medicine because it makes you feel good, not because it makes you feel better. And and that's that sets a dangerous precedent as well. Well, because, yeah, you know, it. Go ahead. It keeps well. It keeps doctors from wanting to prescribe it because the doctors don't want to be stigmatized, and that's an unfortunate side effect as well. Uh, it, where the answer yeah. lies, I'm not sure we, yet. We have just a couple minutes left, and it gets back to a conversation that I think we we agreed off the air, uh, Doctor Tobin, that we want to have uh, at greater length about pain and the many ways and types of pain that that we have. I know that there's something that you wanted to address before we before we ran out of time. Yeah, there needs to be a dedicated show to, to treating pain uh, without all these other issues because it's just so important. You know, opioids, as we said before, are they have a role. They just need to be used deliberately and not in isolation. You know, there are four board-certified pain specialists nationally for every 100,000 patients with chronic pain. So there is just very limited access to folks who are well-trained. Um, and if you have Medicaid uh, or poor insurance, you're very, very little access. So it's really up to the primary care doctors like myself um, to educate ourselves on how to do this safely. And I'll just briefly say that there is a huge spectrum of modalities to treat chronic pain that are beyond opioids, everything from topical therapies um, be they things like lidocaine patches or non-steroidal creams 
to um, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, to various types of of NSAIDs, non-steroidals like ibuprofen and meloxicam, et cetera, to even certain antidepressants, which may not be appropriate in all patients, including potentially in Elizabeth, but um, not not the more commonly used SSRIs, but things like tricyclic antidepressants and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors like Cymbalta. They have a role in chronic pain management also. There, there is a huge spectrum of modalities, and they are best used in combination. Uh, Sean, I know you want to get to one last thing. Is the treatment uh, options for people who have become addicted to opioids? We just have about a minute left. We need to really look at the. We need to evaluate the treatment programs that we have and see what really works and what doesn't work, and look at the success and failure rates. And we need to make it more accessible so that when people want to go into treatment, they can get into treatment when they want to. Mm. Uh, Sean Lang is Director of Public Policy with AIDS Connecticut. If people want to find out more information about any of the work that you do or uh, find out more about naloxone, what's the best way to get in touch, uh, Sean? What's the best place to send them? They can uh, email me at slang at aids-ct.org or they can call me at 860-247-2437, extension 319. And we'll put up more information on our website. Thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. I want to thank Dr. Daniel Tobin, who's Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Tobin, thank you very much. And let's have that conversation about pain. I think it's it's about time to have it in America. Looking forward to it. I also want to thank Elizabeth Strelanchi. She's a journalist. She's a former resident of Connecticut who shared her story today from the studios of WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina. Elizabeth, thank you so much for uh, talking with us and for bringing this to our attention. I truly appreciate it. Thank you, John. You can continue this conversation online. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live. Our show today was produced by Betsy Kaplan. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live.